step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height in the hat, put it all in the hat. Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking. Today, Avram is a professional speechwriter and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speech writing needs, send Avram an email at info at hatradio.ca. That's info at hatradio.ca. Hello, this is Avram Rosenzweig. Welcome back to Hat Radio, episode 31. Uh, we have someone on the show today who's very special. Her name is Miriam Borden. I'm going to tell you about her in a second. But before I do, I want you to know that there are so many firsts on Hat Radio, one of which uh, is today. And in fact, what that is, is that Miriam Borden is the daughter of Linda Krar, who was on our 11th show. Miriam, how are you? I'm great. Yeah? Yeah. How, how do you feel about being the first daughter to be interviewed? Like a legend. Fa you do. <laughs> I think everybody should feel like a legend once in a while. Yeah. Do you, act, do you actually feel like a legend sometimes? I don't know. It depends on the day, I think. Really? You feel that great about yourself sometimes? That's wonderful. I don't know. I think when you do important work and you love the work you're doing and you're around people you love, yeah, it's a good feeling. So Ayn Rand, uh, when she was 12 years old, she wrote a book and she was highly criticized for that. She was criticized for writing a book. And to her critics, she said, screw you. I'm proud of myself, who I am, and I'm not going to be bashful or shy away from it. Um, and I think that's the route to go. I think too many of us are shy about who we are, and we don't want to be too much above the radar. God forbid people should say something about us. Right. right? But I think nothing ever changed when people just sat around doing nothing, right? Yeah, exactly. And thinking, thinking badly of themselves. So. Yeah. So you have a good feeling about yourself. I try to, yeah. Would you say you love yourself? Sure. You sound like your mom. Sure. <laughs> You're from New Jersey, aren't you? I'm from New Jersey. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever murdered you anybody? Or not yet, but you know, I'm still young, so <laughs> you have time, right? Lots of time. All right. So our listeners, uh, I say our because now this is our show. So you're an interesting person. Uh, you have an old, you hold an MA in uh, Yiddish from the University of Toronto, and you're currently working on your PhD. Yeah. H how old are you? I'm 29 and a half as of yesterday. I have six months to go. Okay, muzzle. Oh, you're still counting your halves. My son used to do that when he was like six. I love that. Just till I hit 30, you know? You never know. It could well. continue forever. But here's the interesting <laughs> thing is now that you're a PhD, stu PhD student, can you believe you're a PhD student? No. Right. Like, absolutely. I don't know who let me in. I don't know how I got here. Right. And I feel like it's the imposter syndrome that all graduate students, well, I think many of us have, but especially it's sort of an endemic among graduate students is that we all feel like one day the curtain's just going to be pulled back and they're going to see us for who we really are, which is people who do not deserve to be here. We're right. not smart and enough or 
anything and, enough. And, and then when you have the prefix doctor, you know, they're going to say, Dr. Miriam Borden, please come to check out. You're going you're to look around and wonder who that is. Right. right. Well, we'll see. I don't know. Maybe that's where the legend thing will reawaken, right? Or I'll feel perhaps like I earned it. It might be. Yeah. Yeah. You'll be a good doctor. Thank you. I will let you do surgery on me. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> you're in Yiddish. Um, um, so, yeah. So that's who you are. Uh, here's some interesting nuances. She, as in you, worked as an assistant archivist, researcher, and translator um, at the Ontario Jewish Archives. I was supposed to have a meeting with them. I was thinking about being on their board. But I do that a lot. You know, I reach out and then I pull back. Do you do that? I think I used to do that. And I think I'm trying to be a lot more careful about doing that because Honestly, I realize right. there's just not enough of me to go around and you can't do everything well all the time. Right. I want to make sure I'm doing what I can do well, really well. Yeah. What yeah. are you best at in your life? That's a really hard question. Best. What are you best at? What do you just know? You're in your zone. You're in your body. You're in your mind when you're doing it. I love people. I love working with people. And I love public history. I love talking to people about the past and about their own past, too. So I just... Do you? Yeah. So you ask questions? Yeah. yeah. I want to know everything. Yeah, right. Me, too. I want to share everything. I want them to share everything with me. Yeah. You should do a podcast like this. That's why I'm doing it. Really. Like, when you walk down the hall... To me, you're my first guest, my only guest. You're perhaps the only guest I'll ever have. And you're the, actually the 31st. So it's not as though I've done a ton, but I've done enough. But then I see Miriam Borden coming off the elevator, walking down to my condo, and I go, oh, shit, man, I have a podcast. And you know what? My friend is here, and we're going to have a great talk. That's how I feel, because I want to know who you are, especially because you're Linda's daughter. It's a big piece. I love your mother. Yichas, man. Yichas, exactly. Mm -hmm. We should translate that. How would you translate Yichas? A lineage. Lineage. And like um, cachet because of that lineage. Yeah. Yeah. You see, there's a lot Jewish about Hat Radio, and I'm often wondering, and I'd love to have your uh, advice on this. Is it too Jewish? No. I don't th I, I disagree fundamentally with that category, that anything can be too Jewish or too anything. I How think, so? How so? I think Jews and everybody else, we are who we are, and if we're not in it with both feet, then what are we doing? So I really think there's no such thing as too Jewish. And what about the fact that you married a non-Jew? Does that play into that at all? You, you figured I'd, I'd do that later on in the show, didn't I did you? Think, I was waiting for that, yeah. Can I tell you something funny? I wrote down some notes. I'm trying to structure the show because I'm not highly structured. Um, and I don't want to be highly structured, but I know that a one and a half hour show has to have some components of that. So here's what I wrote. You're going to get a kick out of this. Um, and it's all in jest. It's all tongue in cheek. Um, I want to ask you about your booby and Zadie. I want to ask you about your upbringing. And then, and then I write, I want to ask her about marrying a goy. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something like, so tell me about your guy. And I would say my goy. Oh, I mean my guy. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Is it a pejorative, the word goy? I yeah, should... I don't know. I suppose. I think... Um, Mm, depends who you're talking to, I think. Um, in my case, my sister told me that I should write a, to answer your question, my sister told me um, I should write a memoir about planning my wedding and I should call it Jewish Kilt because yeah. he wore a kilt, which tells you part of what you need to know already. But Your husband wore a kilt? Yeah, he wore a kilt. Really? And a Bonnie Prince Charlie, like the whole outfit, the whole, yeah. Are, are you like nuts about him? I love him. One gets a sense you are so... You see, totally. that's in the Krar blood. 
Your mother's been married thir- three times, and she's going to marry the fourth time, isn't she? I don't know. Probably. Oh, does that bother you? It doesn't bother me. No, no. Mm-hmm. It doesn't bother me. She loves being married. She says it all the time. That's she what loves she it. Said. Yeah. She loves having a companion. She loves the kind of. Um, she likes like the contract deal. Like it's not just enough to be with somebody. She likes locking them into a contract. Yeah, she I loves. I think she really it. enjoys right. that, and right. I think I don't think it's for everybody. I think she. Lo- this is where she thrives. She so. loves the structure of marriage. I think she does. Yeah. And she's taking something out of it in each and every marriage. And the interesting thing about your mom, as she said in the eleventh episode is that uh, she, she said, I sucked at marriage, although she did say that she progressively got better. How are you in marriage? I think I'm awesome. Are, are you? Oh, yeah. Like, I love being married. I think being married is so much more fun than not being married. But I also consider marriage and sort of married life just to be, it's just so much fun. It's just like a, a stop on the fun train. Um, I don't really take it that seriously. Yeah. Because I think, I don't know, I think... People are people, and we're, we're unpredictable, and we're all different. And I think who we marry and why we marry them and when we marry them are also totally subjective and random in some ways. In my case, it was actually totally random. And so you don't take that stuff too seriously. You take something too seriously, you take all the fun out of it. And I'm just having so much fun. Um, yeah, it's like being in an amusement park all the time. So what's the difference between being married and not being married? Spiritually, let's say. I think... So I don't think I was ever one of these people who, you know, imagined my wedding someday. And I think there are a lot of people out there who do. They think about the person they're mm-hmm. going to marry and they think about how it's going to be and how and what life is going to be like. And um, I don't think I ever really did that. I didn't think I had, I don't think I had any clue who I was going to marry. Um, and I think, or what it would be like. And that's why I think I'm having so much fun that every day is a surprise and every day is something new and every day is so entertaining and challenging. Um I'm just having a ball. Yeah. So you wake up in the morning and um, you roll over and, and there he is, right? Yeah. And he's a big boy like me. Yeah. Right? He's right? a big guy. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot to hug or does he hug you? Is he is he um, uh, affectionate? Very. Is he? In the summertime. So this guy runs about 10 degrees warmer than the rest of us. Yeah, Poor right. guy. Poor guy. <laughs> and Toronto's hot. And he's from England too. And England is kind of like one temperature all the time. Yes. Less so now with you know, icebergs melting and things. Or with Brexit. Or, yeah. with, or with Brexit, things yeah. really heating up. <laughs> but um, yeah, so he runs really, really warm. So in the winter, that's like a ama- And I run really, really cold. So in the winter, it's like we're perfect for each other. In the summer, he's just like, you need to get away. You yes. need to move about five inches that way. Right. You No, absolutely not. And he's like the most unaffectionate person I've ever met. <laughs> so once we get into like, you know, October, November, yeah, he'll warm up again. It's an interesting thing, by the way. Sexually, that's an anomaly. That, that after orgasming, women uh, uh, get uh, cold and men get very hot. So while men would push a woman, uh, a man would push a woman away, n- not meaning to be inappropriate, although many men men could be. Um, that that's just the way our bodies work, right? Yeah. Right. Okay, so we've covered some ground already, mm. and I have to tell you, it's really nice to have you here. We used to hang out more so, remember? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you knew my son when he was little. He had really long hair. A lot of really long hair. Yeah, remember yeah. that? We would play hockey together. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. were nice days. Yeah, they were great. Yeah, they were. We can have them again. Yes, we yeah. can. We can. I would love to meet your husband. Anytime. Yes, for I sure. I live downtown. I'm not dead, you know? <laughs> yes, I understand that. <laughs> and you actually made a lot of stops along the road, which we will get to during the interview. Yeah, you're not one of these people who sort of stays put, um, yeah. I guess, unless you have to, right? Yeah. Right. Okay, so before we dive right in, there's a couple of things I want to say. Um, the show's going pretty well. Hat Radio's going well. Uh, it's a challenge 
in terms of making money. To monetize this thing takes forever. And, and I'm in it for the long run and I'm committed to it because I think there's something here. Like I appreciate what I do, right? Um, but I did want to share that with our listeners and uh, say the fact that w this is our 31st episode, it's, it's somewhat epic for me, you know, that we got this far and we did it. Like you've launched stuff, right? You know what that feels like, right? Yeah, it's it's awesome. a big deal, right? Yeah. 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 What's the biggest thing you ever launched? Wow, the biggest thing I've ever launched... Hmm. Is it your Yiddish show? I've done a couple exhibitions, but I don't know if they were. Yeah, that, that's such a good question. I don't know. The biggest thing. But your I've Yiddish ever show seemed really cool. We're going to touch on that later. Yeah. But I love that you did that. It was so interesting how you set it up. A little Thank bit of a you. tease for the listeners. Yeah. Um, and you can subscribe to the show too if you go to HatRadio.ca and you really like what we do. Uh, you can either make a donation or you can uh, subscribe on a regular basis. So do that if you like us. Um, tonight, do you remember my brother-in-law, David Rosenzweig, who was murdered? I never met him, no. Do you remember the story though? 2002. I know it vaguely. Randomly, randomly mm -hmm. was murdered. So tonight is, is it's his yurt site. And it's been, I guess, 17 years or 18 years. Wow. Uh, so we're gonna be at my niece's house. And it's a crazy thing because you watch a family who has gone through violence like that. Just one night, it was a Saturday night after Shabbat, and he went to uh, help his son with uh, car problems. And this guy who was crazy, uh, Meshuga, he stabbed my brother-in-law randomly because he had been screwed around by some kids having to do with drugs, etc. So every single year since then, we've uh, celebrated, I guess, his yard site. Uh, the date of his death and we speak and we get together for dinner and it's changed over the years whereas it used to be very maudlin as you can imagine um, now it's a little bit more cheerful and when you take a look at his family they really have grown beautifully and they have because of my sister Javi who was a guest on this show as well she is a very very special human being like she rose to the occasion and she made sure that she got herself therapy. She made sure the kids had therapy. And this happened for many, many years. And thank God, they've grown up uh, reasonably healthy, I would say. It's quite a beautiful family. Six kids, Miriam. That is beautiful. Yeah, six kids. It's so special. Yeah. The interesting story is that night, sad, that Saturday night when he was killed, um, Hubby had uh, made a cup of co was making a cup of coffee for him. Just the granules were in the mug. And uh, he went out to help his son, and obviously he never came back. But she kept that mug with those granules in her cupboard for, if not years, possibly. I remember going there and opening the cupboard, and it would still be there. Wow. And she believes she will see him again. Mm -hmm. But what do you think about the afterlife? I think our sages really left us hanging here on this one. Say again, once again. I think our sages really left us hanging here on that one. Do you I have any thoughts on it? You think you'll see your Booby and Zadie again? You think you'll see people you've lost? No, actually. You I don't, don't think so. No. Um, no, I don't think so. And I don't, I'm not sad about that. You're not? No. How come? I think life is so special and so wonderful and so difficult and so tragic and so everything that I'm really focused, that's what I'm really thinking about, that's really what I'm focused on, getting through this one and really enjoying, squeezing every last drop out of it. And I'm not that concerned with what happens afterwards. Um, 
because I won't be around to enjoy it anyway. Yeah. Do, so you, do I, you get I, melancholy, maudlin? Yeah, sometimes. What, what do you like? Just kind of quiet, I think. Yeah. Just quiet. I think I like to close up into myself. Um, just alone with my thoughts. And eventually you come out of it. Yeah. So like, have you experienced depression? No. You have not. I have not experienced depression. You're a lucky person. I think I've always felt that who's got time to be sad? It's not, I don't. it's not that logical though. I know it's not. Yeah. But I think yeah. I've always, I, that's just, I no, I've never experienced that. So you see I yourself, as, sad, you, you know? see yourself as a happy person then. Yeah, I do. Do you see a lot of other happy person people around you? Yeah. You do. I think I select those people in my life to be around me. Right. Everybody has their challenges and not everybody's, it's not easy for everybody, but I think generally, yeah. Right. You're, you're, I would say your mother's a happy person. Yeah, I think she is. She is. Yeah. She uh, And if she's not, she pushes herself to be. Well, if she's not, she just goes to the music and then she's happy again. Yeah, right. Exactly. Music is special for her yeah. in that way. So. Are you into music at all? I love music. Do you I'm play? a huge appreciator. No, I come from this like virtuosic family. It's like amazing musicianship yeah. runs in my blood, in my veins. And I like didn't pick up any of it. I think if I really committed, this drives my husband crazy. He says that if I just decided to do something, anything, I will do it well and better than even my teachers. And <laughs> right. he's just, so he's just waiting for me to decide. I keep threatening to pick up an instrument. And he's like, well, the day you do, you're going to become, you know. I'm assuming you're going to pick up a guitar. I think guitar is really cool. Here's the interesting thing about me and guitars yeah. is that when I was little, because of my mom, and our house was like full of like museum quality guitars, like really beautiful, like historic guitars. And like in every room, like multiple instruments in every room. Yes. And she was, there was always a guitar in her hand when I was little too. And so I just grew up thinking that guitars were like a girl's instrument. Like that's what girls did. <laughs> right? And then what? I got older and I kind of experienced a bit more of the world. And I realized that there were no women playing guitars actually. That this was like men like to play guitars. But yeah, at the beginning, so. yeah. in the beginning I would see a man playing a guitar and I would go, what's he doing? He looks so silly. <laughs> what's he doing? That's not for him. I love the way kids think. And I totally just like gendered the guitar in this like really... Why did I even do that? But I did it. I only saw my mom with a guitar in her hand. Isn't that interesting? So so for me, it's like, yeah, I should be playing guitar. Why not? Um, but I really like, um, I have kind of small. Can I see your hands? Okay, the other side. They're not that small. Look at my hands. They're kind of stubby like a bear. Yeah, so, like a bear. <laughs> They're not that small, but I but I always like the mandolin. I like the sound that comes out of it. Beautiful and it's instrument. nice and little. And when I think, if we're, if we're following this, this, this illogical train of thought. Yes. There are beautiful pictures from like the 1920s in the old country in Poland and places like that where there have be like all female mandolin orchestras. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So like historically, I guess the mandolin kind of was a women's instrument. I think it's because it was just little, you know, um, and they would play in these orchestras and there's these like stunning photos. They're like multiples, like lots of these photos of these women. Um, we were all in the same kind of outfit and the same kind of hairdo. It's that 1920s look. And they're all holding mandolins. And it's like the most inspiring thing to me. So. And these were these Jewish women? Yeah. Yeah, all the pictures are like inscribed with Yiddish at the bottom. It tells you like, you know, what their political affiliation was or, you know, what, <laughs> what branch of what party they were, you know, representing. So, you know, it's, it fascinates me, the, the broad view 
or understanding or imagery, let's say, that you have of our people because you've worked in the Ontario Jewish Archives, right? Yeah. You're, 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 the thing you study is Yiddish, and along with that is imagery, right? Totally. Yeah, totally. So I'm going to guess when I ask you questions about the Jewish people and or Yiddish, you probably see pictures in your head. Yeah, absolutely. I see pictures and I see text. Like I actually have a visual image of text because text for me looms super large. So yeah, yeah. So you speak Yiddish? Yeah. So can you speak a little Yiddish? Nice, nice. Very good. So can you have an ongoing discussion with, let's say, a, a, a person who's 85, 90 years old? I did last week. How was it? Amazing. What beautiful. Were you, what were you talking about? Really basic things like, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Oh, you're not from here. Okay, where are you from? And your parents? And what do you do? You know, things like that. Okay, so walk me through that. Do a little bit of that in Yiddish. Pretend to ask me questions. Fin wannen kimst du? Fin kitchener. Ah, kitchener. Kitchener, yeah. Sehr schön. A kleine little shtetl. Ja, ja. Ja. Und was hast du getan dort in kitchener? Meine Füße ist gewesen ein Rav. Ich bin ein Kinder. Baruch Hashem. <laughs> you know, it's interesting the way you say Baruch Hashem. Uh, when I was reading the stuff on you, you did a show, and within the show, there was a German musician, Brody. Yes. Right? Who oh, came. He's brilliant. Is he brilliant? Totally a genius. Yes, I love him. Now, he talked about the melody of Yiddish speaking. Yeah. And he said, even if you're sitting at the breakfast table, and you're asking for a tea. There's a there's a certain ha- uh, uh, song to that. Yeah. So so give me an example of that. What, like what, so in- like for example, he did this like brilliant. He does these sound kind of um, what does he call them? Like a sound these sort of sound installations. And well, he'll 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 interview people and ask them to say things. Well, at least on this this was a Yiddish one about Yiddish blessings, Yiddish blessings and curses. And he asked us um, just to kind of. Um, speak into the microphone like expletives just like say the things that we that 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 we can say with feeling he wanted it with feeling you know how do, how does this sound and so i was i'd sort of like rack my brains for like like the things my grandparents used to yell at each other or at us <laughs> right right <laughs> like um um i said things like guy hangs which is um like go hang yourself basically <laughs> but it's what my bubby would say when you you know she would it's, the, it's like the opposite of saying, can I take your code? It's like, go do it yourself. Like, you know where the kitchen is kind of thing. Yes. So things like that. There is a musicality and there is a, um, I don't know what else to call it. Mel- yeah, there's a melody. And, and I, you know what was amazing about that project is that I'd never really thought about that before Paul Brody walked into my house and started telling me about this idea he had. And I was like, yeah, there is a, and, and and he composes. That's the beautiful thing. He he composes. He'll record someone's voice. Yeah. And then he'll actually compose the notes that they are producing. Oh, really? It's unbelievable. It's so special. And it's you've like, heard this. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. So let's give some context here. In April, uh, an exhibit at the Canadian Language Museum kicked off Yiddish Spring, a celebration featuring Yiddish-based concerts and programming at locations around Toronto. Um, the opening attracted an overflow crowd who listened to Berlin-based musician Paul Brody, sometimes humor sound installation. Now, this is really cool. On the visual side, the exhibit includes a re-imaging of a doctoral student, Miriam Borden's... What's the name of your show? Komatz Aleph O, Back to School at the Yiddish Cheder. What, what does that mean? So Komatz Aleph O is... Um, 
an allusion to the song Afan Prepachik, yeah. probably one of the most famous Yiddish songs now. I love that song. Um, and in the beginning, or in in it, the, there's a rav in a cheder, so in a sort of, let's say, pre-war Jewish elementary school. Yeah. And he's teaching the children how to read the Aleph Beis, how to read the Hebrew alphabet. And the way you do that is, Kometz Aleph O. So you, you Kometz is the vowel, the Aleph is the letter, and together they make the sound O. And so you sort of go through that together. Kometz Aleph O, Kometz Beis Bo, and, and so on. And, and, and is, this, is this something that deeply intrigues you when you're listening to it, when you're doing it, when you're teaching it? Like, is Yiddish, is it, does it embrace you? Do you embrace it? Totally, yeah. How, how, why? Why Yiddish? Why Yiddish? I have thought about this long and hard yep. for many years already. I've probably been doing Yiddish for like 10 years. And I've never really had a good answer for it until actually really recently. I sort of sat down with myself one day and just decided I'm going to answer this question once and for all because I want to know the answer. What pulls me to this to this language? Yes. Um, I study Yiddish because it is the it is yet another way for me to inhabit my Jewishness. That's really the reason I study Yiddish. It's not I study Yiddish because I love Yiddish first and foremost. I study Yiddish for exactly the same reason that I study Gemara, and I study Yiddish for exactly the same reason that I have studied Hebrew, and that I study Jewish history, and that I study Jewish culture, contemporary Jewish culture, and that I love Jewish music. And then I love Jews. Like this is, it's all part and parcel of the same um, landscape. That I study Yiddish because it's just, an, it's the same reason I want to educate my kids in a Jewish way. It's the same reason I want to, I like going to the Jewish film festival to see Jewish films. It's the same, it's all the same reason. It's another way for me to inhabit this thing that we call Jewishness. Well, what do you love about your, about being Jewish? It's so rich. It's so rich and it's so complicated and it's so it can be so painful for so many and has been for so many and it can be so wonderful and joyous at the right. same time that it's painful and difficult. You know, um, I think I was talking to a friend of mine recently and I said um, he's he's from Albania and he I asked him why does he feel Albanian? Like, he's been here since he was 15. He's 35 now. Good question. And I said, so do you feel Albanian? Like, do you feel that? And he said, no, not at all. And I said, how come? You were 15 when you came. Like, that's already, you know, you have a maturity to kind of, you're working, there's like a mature identity already kind of being built there. And he said, because he's gay and his culture totally rejected that. And he, in turn, rejected them and just sort of said, fine, you don't like me? I'm going to go find a different culture that does like me. Oh. And then we talked about my other friend, my dear friend, Maor Oz, who actually just left, like, you asked if I, feel, if I ever feel depressed. I feel kind of depressed right now because he left. He went to Sweden and, like, like less than a week ago. How long was he here for? Um, well, he's from here. I've known him since I came to Toronto, which is seven years. But it's been like a, like a red letter seven years. It's been an important seven years, I think. And so um, he's like, my sister, my sister says he's my platonic life partner. He's your platonic life partner. Yeah. Like your pl platonic soulmate. Totally. How, why? What is he like, this guy? Oh, my God. Just the best. Just like we have so much fun together. Yeah. We, t we solve all the world's problems. Like we solve the problem of the Ashkenazic hegemony. And we solve the problem of the patriarchy. And we solve the problem of <laughs> Jewish languages. And we solve, the, we solve all those problems. And we never get mad at each other. And we never get annoyed with each other. Yeah. And um, I don't have those conversations with anybody else. And I never have. He's and a I special guy. Will. He's a really special guy. So this friend of this Albanian friend, it's really his friend actually, said to me, 
you know, it's an interesting question you ask me. Do I feel Albanian? Because I asked Maor the same question. I said, do, how do you feel? How do, how, he basically said, your culture has rejected you as well. How do you, um, how do you, how, how can you still be a part of that culture when you know they don't, they can't respect who you are? Yes. And Maor's answer was, um, if I didn't have my Jewishness, I wouldn't have anything. This is all I have. And it's everything I have. So I, there's no way for me to just walk away from it. He said, if I did, if I decided to just reject this one day, I wouldn't be anybody. And I think that is like such a powerful, that for me really covers it. That I, I why do I love, what do I love so much about being Jewish? It is so, it's so big. Um, and I think for a lot of people it feels inescapable, but for me it's like, that's what I love about it. I love that it's so, it's so deep and it's so rich and it's so big and there's so much to learn and discover. You spend an entire lifetime, you, you don't know everything, you never learn everything about Judaism. And I think um, I'm just having so much fun like riding that train. It's a great answer, by the way. I, I'm just curious, Yiddish is a ninth or 10th century language, right? Yeah. Right, Central and Eastern Europe. Yeah. yeah. And it's rich and there's a lot of reasons why we should study it. But Talmud is equally as rich in a different way you studied Talmud again I'm just curious why did you cling on to the language as opposed to the learning well I think the language I think they're the same thing I think the language is is the key to the learning so I think you know I can learn Gemara in English too and and often I'll begin with the English but I really like to have a bilingual edition I really or I like to at least have the daf open you know the page of the Gemara open in front of me as I'm reading a an English you know uh, translation because I think the language is so critical I think it's the it's the language is the heart and the soul and I, th and I mean speaking of the Gemara the Gemara has many pages where they talk about the different languages you know why why do you have to write why can certain things only be written in Hebrew and certain things can only be written in Aramaic and how come you can't use Greek for this and how come they're, they're like super concerned about language and I think they're really getting at something um, really fundamental there and I think the language is part of the whole thing uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Maybe because I knew this interview was coming up, I had a dream last night. What more was of, it? More what of like a dream? nightmare. It's like Miriam's version of a nightmare. It's like not actually that scary, but for me, it was like horrible. <laughs> I dreamt that I was like with some Jewish organization in Toronto, and we were doing this kind of like tour around all the Jewish schools. Yes. And like the firmest school. From from being religious. Religious. The most religious school. Where. Uh, it was an Orthodox school, and there were. I guess in my in my dream imagination, like religiosity was expressed through um, what they were wearing. I could tell that they were religious because of how they were dressed. Yes. And I was talking to the teachers, and the teachers were kind of like didn't really have anything interesting to say about what they were teaching and how they were teaching it, and they seemed to be really understaffed, also. And um, it was very like nineteenth century schoolhouse feel to it, even though it was like today. And and the worst part for me is that we're walking through the school, and there's like Yiddish posters and like archival like photos that have Yiddish on them like framed or, and put up around the school so the kids obviously like had some kind of familiarity with Yiddish but they weren't learning the language and they weren't even learning Hebrew right. and that to me I woke up like so distressed I was like this is a nightmare <laughs> the Jewish kids are not learning a Jewish language it doesn't have to be Yiddish certainly it doesn't have to even be Hebrew yes they can be learning Ladino they can be learning a whole bunch of other kinds of languages but something like a Jewish language that really roots us and gives us our own language to speak and to share and to think about and to deal with. Um, the fact that these kids in my dream, in this horrible nightmare I had, <laughs> weren't learning Yeah, you have fascinating language. sleeps. I know. You know, it's interesting because the, 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 
it said within an anthropological environment, I studied anthropology in York, York University here in Toronto, is that language is culture. Culture is language, right? Right. Right? Right. So your booby and Zadie, your mom, do you call her Linda? Sometimes. What, what, what is that? Because most people don't call their parents by their first name. <laughs> by the way, if my son called me by my first name, I'd be okay with it. I really would. I think, you know, yeah, I think it's okay. Um, I think it's fine when, I don't, yeah, I don't, there, I don't think there are real rules. For me, there are no real rules around that. I think you call your parents, they're your parents, and you can't change that relationship no matter That's what you true. call them. And I think, um, yeah, I call her Linda when she's like not listening to me. I need to like get her attention. <laughs> and you know what? It works every time. It does, does yeah, it? Oh, every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does her back go up or no? No. You know, no. There, there's a bunch of Im- images of you on the internet. Um, I used one to advertise the show. And you're very photogenic, by the way. Thank you. You really Kylie. are. Do you wear makeup? A little bit. A little bit? Yeah. Yeah, you're very photogenic. You have a lovely smile. Thank you. Yeah, you really do. You're welcome. Anyways, there's one where you're with your mother, and your mother's beaming as she as she does, at least publicly. And you're kind of cuddling her. You're standing next to a bridge or something. I don't know what it was. But you're kind of cuddling her. And I looked at that picture, and I thought, my God, there's true love there, right? I think I know that picture. That's in Poland. Is that in Poland? That's in Krakow, of, yeah. Which you've gone many times, right? Yeah, we've been there. My mom and I have been there twice together, and yeah. I've been there once by myself. So, so your mom did that cycling thing there, right? Yeah, yeah the ride for the living. Yeah, yeah. Episode eleven. Listen episode to that. Episode eleven. So, so you're 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 kind of cuddling up to your mom, um, and I'm thinking how beautiful that is that you have such a relationship. Like, does your mother listen to you? Yeah. Does she wonder who you are? Yeah, but she also knows who I am in a way that I don't even know who I am. Could you can you talk to that? I don't even know. I think, um, like, she's known me for longer than I know her, in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, meaning, mm-hmm. I don't remember my early life. None of us do. And so I think she she's known me forever. And I think there are certain things she knows about me that I'm still kind of waiting to be discovered in my own. And I'm waiting to, like, be revealed. Like, I'm willing, I'm waiting to kind of um, chart that territory as my life goes on. I think she has this almost, like, bird's eye view already of certain things, not everything. Um, Will you ask her questions about you? Mom, how was I with this? How did I do this? No. Yeah, I guess so. Sometimes. I think mostly my husband gets those questions. Does he? <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. so. I knew you when you were a little girl. You were adorable. You were a sweetheart. You really were. And you haven't changed. <laughs> so, so okay. So uh, another question about relationship with your mother, because I can, I think that can be highly inspirational and meaningful. It's like it's a drag for people who don't have a great relationship yeah. with their parents, isn't it? Yeah. It's a real drag. And I always feel really bad for them. And I, I just think it's just such it's so fun when it's good. You do, you, know? do you hide anything from your mother? Do I hide anything? I don't know. I have to talk about my husband again because he has been, <laughs> he, he came into my life and sort of, um, I like a moment where, um, a moment when I was really kind of figure out my relationship with my mom, actually. Yeah. It, was, yeah. it was like awesome. And then, like as a teenager, and then I kind of moved away. I moved to Toronto, and it, it, it was not. It wasn't because of the move. I think the move was actually a symptom of, of the kind of um, the difficult patch of our relationship. And then, and I was kind of trying to figure out like how, how do my what what's this going to look like? And I was really frustrated all the time, especially with her. And then Rowan entered my life, and immediately just it was like putting on glasses for the first time. And he gave me this perspective that I like. I say to him, you. 
you 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 like look at my family and you read them in a way that I've been trying to figure out how to read them for like my whole life. So he's perceptive. And in like, in like a second, he told me exactly what was going on. He could tell me the situation and how to get through it and how to move to the next. And he still does that. He's still totally, yeah, perspective is just like, his perspective is so special and so important to me. And well, I what, think what's the crux of how he defines your family? Let's say one, one of the nuances. Um, the nuances, I guess. What does he see in your mom? I'm curious. <laughs> oh, it's such a good question. I don't, you got to have him on the show now. Um, I think he sees her as someone who's very passionate. She is. Very easily distracted. She is. Um, really happy. She just wants to have fun, make everybody happy. <laughs> yeah, she does. Um, That's a big piece with her. She wants to make others happy. It really is. Yeah. It's It's who she is, I think. And I think so, too. I think she lives off external energies in that way. Like on the show, on a regular basis, she would be doing shout outs to a dozen different people. Yeah. And I commented on it some t- at some point saying, wow, you're highly professional. And now talking to you, I'm thinking, you know, it's not that Linda's highly professional, although she is. Um, it's that she's loving and caring and deeply wants to make other people's lives better. Yeah. Yeah. Really, truly. So I think he sees that in her as well. And I think. Are they close? Yeah, they yeah, love each other. They do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually great. I I love <laughs> I love he is just such a good I think it's cuz he's someone external and I think that's that's all that needs to be. Is somebody external, you throw them into the mix and all of a sudden things just calm down. At least in in our little situation, that's how it works. And he is just so good at keeping all of us on track and diffusing tension and just sort of um I think he sees he sees we're all like we're all so close that we're all like too close, and I think we know exactly how to push each other's buttons. And um, and he he comes in just sort of saying, "Whoa, whoa, get that finger off the button! What are you doing? Why are you doing this?" But he does it with such grace and elegance and um, subtlety. What a lovely guy! <laughs> yeah. And you met him when you were baking. Yeah, I huh? was I was working as a baker and a, a chef in a little cafe downtown. Which you kind of develop that, right? You use that as part of your career and ways to make money. Yeah. Oh, right? yeah. I was living off that money. Yeah, yeah. So you're a good baker. Yeah, I'm trained. So I hope I'm good. Yeah. Where were you trained? On the job. On the fly. Yeah. Like literally, they're like, okay, so here's how you do this. Okay, how long are you here till? Okay, great. We have time to make the dough. It was like that. Well, like so, I didn't go to school. So, so what do you love baking? I love baking because it is so creative. Um, and so I worked with this amazing woman in England named Linda Ladonde. She's Kenyan. She's lived in England for a long time, though. And she great is this name. great name. Linda yeah. Ladonde. Linda Ladonde. And she, I met with her when I, this was early on when we first moved to England. And I think we'll talk about that in a second. But we moved there and she said, okay, I'm going to train you to make the cinnamon buns is a Scandinavian mm. cafe. Mm. I'm going to train you to make the buns. You got to be here at 5.30. And I was like, okay. And she's like, she goes, I'm a little crazy. Like most people get here at six. I get here at 5.30. So you got to be at 5.30. She said it again. I was like, okay, Linda, yeah. I get it. All right. Was she a statuesque, lovely, lovely woman? Like she, aesthetically? She she's a big sh- lady. Did she have shining commanding. skin? Shining skin? Sh- like, like radiant. Yeah. Radiant, right? Radiant. Right. Radiant. Kenyans. I don't know. Oh, man. Radiant. Yeah, yeah totally. Right. So I get there at five o'clock, not 530. I'm like, I beat her there. And she shows up. It's like still dark. It's like winter in England. And she shows up and she's like, I can't believe you're here. I said, Linda, you told me to be here at 530. What did <laughs> right. you expect? Right. And that was kind of how our relationship worked. Like she trained me. She was really my, 
I didn't go to culinary school, but she was my culinary teacher. And I remember like she said certain things to me, like she would look at the dough. She was really methodical and really mathematical, but she would look at the dough at one point and just sort of say, that doesn't look right. And I'm like, how do you know though? How do you know? You did everything exactly the way you're supposed to. And she'd go, no, that doesn't look right. And I'd say, but Linda, how do you know? And she would go, she put her hand up and go, close her eyes and say, I know my dough. <laughs> and she would just like pinch it, like poke it nice. and look at it and then go, no, we're tossing that one, we're starting over. And I'm like, wow. She had this like intuition about baking. So that's what I love about baking is that in a way you can't really be taught how to bake. You can be shown how it's done, but there is an intuition that you have to develop about it. Cooking is the same way. You have to develop an intuition. Mm -hmm. You can teach up to mm -hmm. a point, but then intuition just has to take over mm -hmm. and you have to just, I know my dough. You just have to know your dough. And I think, and that's what Linda really taught me. And I, th I take that with me like every time I sit down with like a bag of flour. I'm like, okay, dough, let's get to know each other. Ah, that's lovely. <laughs> and you just gave me the name of the show, I Know My Dough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let me ask you this. Just give me one or two things that you just adore baking. By the way, you'll notice that in front of you, I always put stuff out for my guests, figuring, you know, they might be thirsty. Perhaps you went through a desert to get here. Um, I'm thinking that maybe you want some nuts, a little bit of protein, a little bit of nourishment, right? And we also put out um, vegan um, brownies that my son and I made last night. I have to tell you something. He's very inspiring. Like He pushes me to do stuff. I'm not always good with doing stuff. I'm not very planful. Are you planful? It depends. Yes and no. Like on a Sunday, a long weekend, would you figure out stuff to do or would you just lie in bed and listen to music or what? I definitely have a list of things to do. But if the mood takes me and I'm just going, you know what? I can do that stuff later. Okay. I can just sit in bed and listen to music for okay, a bit. Okay, good. So know? my son said, let's bake something. So we bake those. Did you have a bite? Not yet. C could you taste it, yeah. please? Yeah. And, and in your response, have it come in Yiddish. Let's do that. Oi, gewaldig. <laughs> gewaldig, which means good. Do you really like it? I really like do it. Do you? Do you? What What? What taste um, do you taste? What's in there? Do you know? I mean, I can guess, but. You just guess. It's either going to be like applesauce, avocado, something like that, coconut oil. Yeah, coconut, right. Yeah. Um, but that's not, I can't really taste that, actually. I just know that. Okay. <laughs> um, I like it because it's what a brownie should be. It should be dense and really intense and dark, and that's what they are. So, so we did a good job. Yeah, I did an ace job. Oh, okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. So to, just to go back. No, did you hear that? We did a good job. Okay, he, <laughs> he said great. So just to go back to my question. So two or three things that you just adore baking. I love anything to do with yeasted dough. I love Scandinavian stuff because that's like what I, it's what I learned. That's what I love. Anything that's yeasted dough though because you kind of know how it's going to turn out but you kind of aren't really sure every time. Mm -hmm. um, so yeasted dough for sure. Um, and I love baking cakes. I, cookies, it's like, eh, I don't care so much about cookies. I love baking cakes though. Um, that's for me, cakes and um, like yeasted doughs. What, what, what kind of cake would you like making? So here's something I learned in England. They, those people love cake. They eat cake. Like, I mean, like here we would call them like celebration cakes, maybe like yeah. cakes, like birthday style cakes, uh. big, big, ex, you know, exciting cakes. Yeah. Um, but they eat that kind of cake, like literally for breakfast, I swear. And for lunch and for dinner, like with their, like for dessert after dinner, they'll have a little piece of cake. And so oh. you go to the supermarket and there's like a whole aisle, I swear, just full of cakes in little, like little ones, like six inch cakes, two, two layers. It's just like the most normal thing there. Those people taught me how to eat cake. What kind of cakes would they eat in, in England? They eat what they call um, sponge, which is not what we know as sponge cake, which is like mostly eggs and air. Right. 
like like Passover cake, like not like that. Like they call like a regular like vanilla cake or like a regular like chocolate cake. They call a sponge. So it's like a chocolate sponge, a vanilla sponge. Um, and they just like a cake like that with like a buttercream frosting. That's what they eat. They love it with jam. Sometimes with like a jam filling inside. It's like very British. And a tea, I imagine. With a cup of tea. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, it's like always raining, and that's what you want when it's raining, right? It's yes, it's, kind of, it's, cake. it's very comforting, right? Yeah. But, but let me ask you this. What is it about our people, the Jewish people, whereby we have uh, we have a pastry which is called in English a nothing, in Jewish or Yiddish it's called an erkichlach. Right? Is that right? Erkichlach, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and we also have, you mentioned a moment ago, that, that sponge cake, which is air. <laughs> yeah. So what are these things? Where did they come from? Uh, food history. Um... My sense is that, okay, uh, my sense is that, well, I, not my sense. I know that um, cakes, like that we, what we call cake today, and also ayakichlich, are, um, which is like egg cookies is what they really, is what it actually means. Yes. Um, are inventions of the modern day. So it's, it, those come from a time when things like eggs and sugar are readily available and are cheap. Right. So that's like a moment in history that we kind of have to always remember that the things that we like brownies, cocoa is exotic. Actually, cocoa is not from here. Cocoa comes from faraway places. Yes. Cocoa has to be shipped and harvested and aged properly. It's kind of like wine. Like the way you treat chocolate is kind of the way you, you deal with like wine or coffee. And so the fact that and I'm looking at this bowl of like Brazil nuts, like those aren't from here. Right. right. That's right. So like that's what we have to remember about things that we consider like normal food is only normal since relatively recently not even relatively since like really recently actually even like avocado toast which is kind of like the cuisine of my generation so they say avocado toast like avocados aren't from here either and they've become it's so normal now but it's totally not normal even 10 years ago it wasn't so normal right and so it's tasty though isn't it oh it's really nice but yeah cake and like ayakichlech also um they come from i think cheap ingredients that are now cheaper and more readily available um you know i think for example, carrot cake is actually one of the oldest cakes. The oldest recipes for cake is a carrot cake. Why carrot? Oh, is it really? Yeah. Why carrot? Think about simis. Simis. Yeah, we'll explain what simis is. Simis is like this. Um, it's a, It sounds kind of strange, but it's so delicious. It's a sweet stew, usually with meat, but you can make it with anything, really. It doesn't have to be meat. Usually it's like sweet potatoes and carrots, and some people put onions and raisins and prunes, and you just cook it all down. Um you eat it on Rosh Hashanah, on the Jewish New Year. It's a sign, sort of a, a sweet New Year, a wish for a sweet New Year. Right, right, and it's tasty. It's so delicious. I like put cinnamon. Some people will add actual honey to it, like yeah. to increase that sweetness and sugar. Like I don't even use the honey or the sugar. I just think, so for me, like the sweetness for me comes out of the prunes, the sweet potatoes, and of course the carrots. Right. Carrots are really sweet. And that's what historically they were used for in baking. So carrot cake was developed because carrots were plentiful where they were developed and where Kerry was developed it's like northern Europe and they were so sweet you didn't need all that sugar which was expensive in the you know let's say 1600s yes so um, the 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 historical dimensions of food it, that's for me the most interesting part of it is that you know we they're like it's like opening a book a history book when you look at a piece of food you just have to know to look for it you'd have to know to open it up but in the show Stissel which was on Netflix. You saw it? Yeah, twice. You saw it twice. In Hebrew and then in English when they came with subtitles. Really? Yeah. You loved oh, it? Yeah. You loved yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So I loved it too. It's about a Haredi family in Israel. Haredi is far right wing, ultra right wing. 
and how they deal with life. And I think it brings a very human perspective to these individuals, which we need to do yeah. because we don't know the Haredi community unless we're part of it or exposed to it. We don't know the Amish community. And it's important that we get to know one another, particularly those who seem very mysterious to us. But within the show Shtisel, the uh, the actors were always sitting at a table, or more often than not, eating. Yeah. Or at one point, one of the women who was going to be betrothed to one of the main actors went off to another city where she used to live, and she was carrying, I think, a very big crock pot full of cholent, yeah. which is a Jewish stew. Well, why? Why are is that true that we're eating a lot through over discussion or through discussion? Was there something uh, realistic about how they portrayed our consumption, our drinking of tea and coffee and all that stuff? Who's when you say our? Who do you mean? Jewish people. Jews. Do, do we do that a lot? I is, think, is that indigenous to us? No, definitely not. I think the kind of. Um, it's like a stereotype almost that, you know, every kind of Jewish event will always be surrounded or revolve around food. I think. Or, you know, the joke, we were we were persecuted. They killed us. And now we won. Let's eat. Let's eat. Yeah. yeah right. Right. Every holiday. Exactly. Um, yeah. I think the food, I think that actually says something more powerful about memory and about the about Jewish um, attachment to memory and history. And I think. Uh, it's manifested, you know, food Food is a manifestation of that and sharing a meal and kind of the memory that food holds that I just talked about a second ago. Um, I think it works really well with that kind of, it works really well. It's it's a good serving, we know this, that taste memory and, and um, you know, scent memory are, are like our strongest, um, I don't know, memory senses, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so I think food does that job really well, but I think really what that's getting at is that Jews are really interested in memory and really interested in history oh. and really interested in never forgetting. So I think I think food helps us not forget and helps us remember and helps us kind of um, learn and teach those lessons to to you know the kids at the table and share those lessons with the Bubi and Zaidi at the table. And I think that's what sort of Jewish food is really about. Have you influenced a lot of people who are not Jewish about Judaism? Because you're so wholesome and hearty in your approach to it. You're talking about food. You're talking about history. You're very, very wholesome when it comes to Judaism. Most of us are kind of dragging our ass around and saying, I, I have to do this. I need to put on tefillin this morning. You know, there's, there's a certain, what shall I say, heaviness to our people. But you're not heavy at all. No. You're I not. Think, I think uh, when it, you know, I think. I think a lot of people think Judaism is about the laws and it's about the things you have to do and the obligations and the, but I think, you know, there's wisdom in laws and there's wisdom in, in, in those, in that teaching, in that body of literature. Um, and I think we, I, you know, the literature is there for us to read. The laws are there for us to interpret and kind of figure out. Um, and I think, I think we, I think, um, I want to say this. I was thinking about this this morning, actually. I was thinking about the fact that Judaism, about exactly this, that Judaism feels so heavy for so many people. Yes. But when we remember that there's, there's, put it this way, from my perspective, I never, um, I never think I'm smarter than the, the as, as, as mundane and irritating as some of these laws, the laws of Jewish life are, um, and as heavy as they can be, there's something, I respect the wisdom that lies within them. 
and I never think I'm smarter than them, than than the laws or than the people who created those laws. Yes. And I think um, I don't have to keep all those laws. There's no one cracking the whip. You know, I don't have to keep all those laws, but I can respect those laws from a distance. And and I think that's what they're there for. I think some of them certainly do need to change. I think that's that's a part of how laws work, but not all of them. And I still think there's that wisdom, that kind of I, I don't what right do I have? I'm 29 years old. What right do I have to um, to tell that entire body of knowledge? No, you're wrong. Yeah, right. Exactly. So. Yeah, I say that often to people. You you often hear people will say, "Oh, all those laws are just stupid." I said, "Really stupid." Like you have the ability to say that, right? Do you position that very well? And we don't, we don't give it the due respect that it deserves. You don't want to practice it. Don't. Right. 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 Miriam uh, Herring. <laughs> <laughs> Herring. So I'm reading an article that you wrote. I believe it was for the Canadian Jewish News. Yeah. And it's this lengthy article. I think it got front page. Two thousand words, baby. Front how did, page. How did you feel about getting front page? Oh, God, I think it's so funny. I loved it. I thought it was so funny. It, you know, it began as almost like a like a dare, like to write a, like a, a serious talk about herring. And then it became like when that materialized, um, it, I was encouraged, you know, you got to submit this to the CJN. They've got you, they have to know about this. And then I sort of said, yeah, right. They're never going to if I'm lucky, they'll give me like a, a an inch, really like a, a one like a little box inch, in the back. Like nothing. Yeah. yeah. Like like a smaller than a than a cheap ad. That's all I'm gonna get. <laughs> and instead, immediately the response was, This is great. What do you say? Two thousand words, front page, run over Pesach. And I was like, Whoa. That's pretty cool. Wow. You know? I want you to know I've been writing for the CJN since two thousand and one. I don't think I've ever gotten the front page. You gotta write about herring. Clearly. Right, right. Or something that smells. So so you write this article. Uh, it, it, and I just love it. I just really enjoyed reading it. The history of herring has been well documented by clubophiles. Clupiophiles. Well, what are they? People who love herring. They're actually called a file? Like they have a designation? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Clupi like a bibliophile loves books. I understand right. that. But there's people who are actually called lovers of herring. Well, something I learned is that the herring, what we've come to know as the herring, is actually, in its Latin name is Clupia herengus. Yes. And so one who loves Clupia Harangus is a Clupiophile. This is what they call themselves. It's like a community of people, yeah. Are you a Clupiophile? I am neither a Clupiophile nor a Clupiophobe. I think I fall right in the middle. I think I can appreciate herring. Um, I don't want it for breakfast. Definitely not. I don't want it for Kiddush even, after, after synagogue. I don't want it. When do you want it? I want it... Um, I think I want it to be present on the table at like a bar mitzvah or a wedding. Like I want to see it. I want to see it at synagogue too, but I don't necessarily have to eat it. Maybe one little piece. The first time I ever tried it was like really recently, actually. It was like a few years ago. Um, and I was surprised at how much I liked it. Fish is not, we never, we weren't really fish people in my family. We never really ate fish. Right. And I was really surprised at how, first of all, I didn't know it was sweet. I didn't understand that at all. Yes, and I was like, is. wow, it's actually, it's sweet and it's really soft. I didn't understand. So now I get it. But it's not my first choice. So you could have schmaltz herring. Yeah. What What is schmaltz herring? Schmaltz herring refers um, to the fat of the fish. It's usually we think it refers to like the fat of like a cream sauce mm -hmm. that usually it's packed in, but actually it refers to the fat of the fish. It's a fish that has eighteen percent fat or more. It's very fat. It's a fatty fish. Right, yeah. right. And then you have the, your marinated herrings. Yeah. And those are. 
Um, well, it depends. They can be schmaltz herring also. They can also be fatted, you know, really fat herring because the connoisseurs say that, um, well, actually, they call milch herring the most, the best for pickling, which is um, actually a fresh, a young herring. It can be anything, really. Anything can be pickled. Anything can be pickled. So you write in the article, the ubiquity, and I've never used the word ubiquitous in that way. Ubiquity. You should. It's really empowering, actually. Yeah, you must love words. I love words. My son and I agreed the other day that we both like the word diarrhea. It's a good, it's an important word. Well, it is, but why would we both like that? The question like is, that? can you spell it? So that's the thing. Right. I said to him, spell it for me, and he did. Oh. Oh, yes. He really loves the word diarrhea. He's a good writer, too. The ubiquity of herring on poor Jewish tables throughout Europe lent the fish status as a particular socioeconomical marker. This translates to mean where there is no worthy man, even a herring is a fish. It's a Yiddish proverb. Now, what does that mean? Where there's no worthy man, even a herring is a fish. Basically, it means um, beggars can't be choosers. It means be happy with what you have. Right. You can't, where there's no worthy man, where there's nothing. That's basically what it means. Uh, here in Toronto, uh, United Bakers Dairy Restaurant has herring on their menu, right? But they don't put it under fish, do they? No. What do they put it under? I think they call it apps from the shtetl. <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah. Apps from the shtetl. It's like my favorite corner of the menu. It's a big deal, herring. Yeah, it is. It it's surprisingly really is. big deal. I didn't know. I just sort of stumbled into it, and I, it's a surprisingly big deal. Miriam, I met a friend recently. His name's David, someone who I grew up with, a religious man, quite religious. And he comes up to me, he said, you know, um, our mutual friend Menachem told me that at your son's bar mitzvah, you did not have cholent. You did not have kugel. He goes, you did not have herring. And he went through this whole litany of things which we did not have, which are really what? Which are sort of local to, I guess, bar mitzvah fair or kiddish fair, which is sort of the meal we have after services. And I said, it's true because it was a vegan meal. Uh, and, and it was right. Mexican cuisine. Oh, cool. It was lovely. I, I should have invited you. Wow. Yeah. But and there's no video or anything. So, But but that's what we had. And and he uh, was startled by this, seriously startled. He goes, Avram, how could you make a bar mitzvah with none of that? Mm. Right? And I, and I guess the lesson we learned from that, it's really embedded in our culinary souls yeah those are like what, we, what i call jewish memory foods yeah those are very much bagels also are the, like bagels are the same way bagels and lux and um you know babka for sure like anything you find at like a honestly things you find at united united bakers right um, and, places, and, and places like it there's all along bathroom street there's like tons of these places what, what's uh what's herring anti-semitism <laughs> herring anti-semitism yeah uh it was the headline of an article from 19 was it 1912 or 1913 or something? Um, the newspaper Der Tog, The Day, which was a Yiddish newspaper in New York, they were talking about the fact that, oh no, it had to have been after the outbreak of World War I actually. Maybe it was 1916. That makes more sense because they were talking about the fact that because of the war, herring imports were interrupted. Like herring imports from Europe to New York were um, interrupted. And so um, some some fish dealers in New York had made a deal with people in Nova Scotia yes, in Canada. to import Canadian herring instead to kind of 
until the war quieted down and they could get prices back to where they should be and, and they could afford to bring it in. Um, but Jews, had, who, who, who they, you know, they claimed we are the reason that herring exists in New York, that herring is part of the culinary landscape, and we have been um, excluded from those deals. And we call that herring anti-Semitism. <laughs> I love the term. It's so good. I love the term. We really shouldn't laugh because anti-Semitism is somewhat rampant. But herring anti-Semitism, it's a bit of an oxymoron. Mm. Your grandparents were Holocaust survivors, right? Yeah, both. Uh, and they were um, uh, fiery sort of people, weren't yeah. they? Yeah. yeah. Do you remember that fire? Yeah. Do you do? Oh God, they hated each other. But did it did it play out constantly when you were there visiting? Because you used to come up for the summers. Yeah. Around me, around me and my sister. Um, no, there was kind of like they would sort of like divide into two halves of the house. So we didn't really. It's when they were together that things were kind of bad. And even when we lived in New Jersey, they would come to visit us separately. Like they wouldn't come together. My Bobby would come yeah. and then she would go back and then my Zadie would come. You know, it was really interesting. And she, so the two of them, we hung out with them separately, you know, and I think that's how we kind of kept the peace. But do, do you remember what it was like being a little girl and recognizing that your grandparents didn't like each other? I think anytime they yelled, anytime anybody yells it was scary. at someone else. Yeah, it's scary. Because you think, I think you think maybe you've done something wrong. Like maybe they're yelling because usually when you're a kid, people are yelling at you. Don't do this. Don't do that. And so I think you're like, whoa. It's, you know, yelling is, we're lucky that we live in society where yelling is is not normal. And I think the minute you see that, you're like, That's very whoa, true. it's jarring. That's very you know? true. L- Linda, your mother is second generation. Are you third generation? Yeah. Oh, I'm not, I'm not saying in terms of you being born to your mother. I'm saying, do you feel third generation? Yeah, definitely. And what, I think what is that third? Because we don't talk about third generation very much. We're starting to. More so, yes. More so, because I think we're... We're, well, we're losing that first generation, and I think we're we're now find ourselves in a position where we we are the keepers of that knowledge, and that's a really big responsibility for us. And so we're starting to kind of gain an awareness of this. But yeah, I think I am a third generation. Um, knowing those people, having like firsthand knowledge of of survivors, um, is something that's increasingly rare. I I realize that when I meet people in the world. Um, you know, I've grown up among people who are also grandchildren of survivors. Yes. We sort of only know each other until you get older and you grow up and you move away and you meet people who go, wow, your grandparents survived the Holocaust? I'm so sorry. People they say, say it like that. They do they go, say it like that? I'm so sorry to hear that. And I've never gotten that response before because we're all named for all of my friends and me, all of us, we're all named for people who died in the war. Yes. Right? Like yes. we carry that with us. We like, we are the living legacies of those people. Yes. And that's actually pretty heavy when I think about it objectively, you know, but <laughs> but I haven't really thought about it objectively because I haven't had to. The minute you step out of that role, you realize that's special. Uh, that's not a common thing. Um, and so then that reaction, you know, I don't blame those. I don't blame people when they go, I'm so sorry to hear that. Your grandparents survived the war. Wow, that must be so hard. I haven't really thought about it too much, you know. I just, I carry the names of those people who were murdered and I move on with my life and I do the best job I can, just like we all do. Um, but, but there is a third generation thing that's becoming more acute, I think. Um, it's interesting. It's very interesting. How would you play it out, third generation? What would you do? I think I'm doing it. I'm studying Yiddish. Yeah. I am learning right. the history yeah. and trying to figure out how Yiddish can sort of be, uh, continue to be relevant for us um, and, and, and find those reasons. Um, 
and share that knowledge with my generation, who are not all people who are grandchildren of survivors. I'm trying to show them. And it's not all about the war. Like, I don't study Yiddish because of, of the resonance it has with the Holocaust. I think it sort of has developed. Yiddish has developed a resonance with the Holocaust. But, of course, you said earlier, Yiddish is a medieval language. Yes, Yiddish yes. predates the Holocaust. Yiddish is not just violence against Jews in the 1940s. Yiddish is violence against Jews for a thousand years. <laughs> I like the way you laugh when you yeah. say that. Well, yeah. I mean, like, one of my favorite, really dark, but really delicious for this reason, one of my favorite answers to the question, like, you know, like what do you, what's going on? What do you what do you hear? Is you shrug and you go, eh, which means um, it literally means one attacks Jews. Like yeah, meaning like what's going on? Oh, you know, Jews are being attacked. Same old. So you say it in Yiddish again? Mishlokt Yidin. Mishlokt Yidin, yeah, right. Mishlokt Yidin. Eh, with a little shrug. <laughs> I love the way Same you do old. that. I love the way you do that. Do you speak Yiddish? Just when you shouldn't? <laughs> when I shouldn't. <laughs> Forbidden Yiddish. No, I don't actually. Um, I enjoy Yiddish and I, and in my spare time I will kind of enjoy it, but I don't, I don't actually really speak it because I don't have anybody to speak it with, to well, be honest. you ever meet an old woman and you start speaking Yiddish to her and her eyes just light up? All the time. Oh, I love that. That's my favorite. And I'm lucky that in this right. community we have, we have a population, um, a vibrant population of Yiddish speakers and, and they're, they're older and they're and they're so excited when they see somebody young with Yiddish. It's like the most beautiful thing. Miriam, uh, you you know what a, a righteous gentile is. Mm-hmm. What is a righteous gentile? The official term. Official term. A righteous gentile would be somebody who is recognized formally for the work they did to save Jews during the Holocaust. Okay. And we know that from Yad Vashem, right? Which is the institution in Israel that was set up to remember those who perished and those who were courageous and saved Jewish lives. Now, would you be a righteous Jew? What does that mean? Would I save other Jews? Yeah, no. What does no, it mean? No, would you save anybody? Oh, would I save anybody? Yeah. You would. Sure. At the peril of your own life, the risk of your own life. I think so. The risk That's, of your children's life. I think so. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't have children, so I don't know actually. Okay. So listen. I think I, it's sort of underdeveloped in that area. I wrote a play. Yeah. Yesterday. <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> and you're in the play. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna do it together right okay. now. Okay. Okay. Now, now the play is called "Whether to Save or Not: Jews in Our Barn in the Town of Auschwitz." Okay. Okay. Um, you'll notice that there are three characters: Regina, Stefan, and Maria. How would you say in Polish? Maria, Maria. So, where next to your name? Uh, ne- I'm sorry. Where you speak, it says Miriam. Where I speak, it says Avram. Mm-hmm. Now you are both Regina and you are Maria. So you're the mother and you're the daughter. So you're gonna have to adjust your voice a little okay, bit. Okay. Okay. Can you do that? Yeah. Yeah, and don't do it like silly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I feel like Maria would be like Marta. That's so the you're welcome to call her Marta. Okay. Okay. So here, so Regina is a Polish woman and her family living in the town of Auschwitz during the war. And she is having to decide whether or not to save a Jewish family in her family's barn. They just moved in. They just like a day ago. Stefan, that's Regina's husband, who struggles with the decision and actually with his wife's will. He diverges from what she feels or thinks. And Maria, or Marta, we'll call her if you want, their 12-year-old daughter desiring to act good in a time of war. She's a good girl but wanting desperately to return to the days of old when all was fun and happy. Okay? So here we go. Uh, I'm the voiceover, and then you'll see that you're Regina. Okay? The moon is hanging over the town of Auschwitz, and all is quiet that night. People have no strength to enjoy themselves. 
Life has been terribly hard for the Polish people since the invasion of the Nazis. There is no time to celebrate. There is no good food and drink. A family of three sits at their table. A candle is lit. The day is coming to an end, and they are talking, arguing, debating, perhaps the biggest decision of their lives. Should they hide a Jewish family who snuck into their barn that morning, or should they tell them to go? I don't see this as a choice. It's clear what we need to do. They're a family, like we are. They are people. We must hide them. Perhaps one day they'll hide us. Regina, you'll remember not more than two months ago, the Olshansky family were taken out of their home and murdered by those bastard Nazis for hiding a Jewish family. And the Jewish family, Regina, also murdered the father, the mother, three little girls. Is that what you want for us? Please stop it. I can't listen to this. I just want things to be the way they were. I want my friends. I want to go to school. Not hear those sirens. I want to eat ice cream. Regina, go ahead. Marta. Things aren't that way anymore. One day, we will have peace and enjoy the beauty of God's world. Until then, my beautiful gift, we suffer and we make decisions. We do have a choice. Our choice is to rescue someone, but whom? I say we rescue ourselves. It's our job to do so. Is that Jewish family's blood any redder than ours? Stefan, do you remember why I fell for you? Do you remember why? Do you remember that night when we were eating, dancing, and singing? We had known each other for a month. Do you remember how we looked out from the patio and saw an old Jewish woman sitting by the side of the road, struggling to sit up, obviously hungry? I remember. You were the only one in that whole place who ran to her, gave her food from your own plate, while others laughed at you and the women. They yelled, Jew lover. Do you remember? Yes, I remember, my dear. That seems like many, many years ago. Yes, it seems like worlds away when our greatest task was drinking and celebrating life in Auschwitz and occasionally helping a desperate old Jewish lady. Times have changed, Stefan. But that is why I fell in love with you. You were unlike any of the other boys. Your heart was as big as all of Europe. Your compassion for others was infectious, inspiring. So why is today different? What has changed? Have you had a heart transplant? Ha <laughs> <laughs> No, my dear, I have the same heart, but most of my love today is for you and Merika, not the Jewish family in the barn. I do, no, I do not want our lives to end like this, when we could live on well after the war and we could be happy. Jews will die. They are dying. There is nothing we can do. Regina looks at her young daughter, clearly in pain over the discussion. What do you think, Marika? What would you do? What should we do? I think we must save the Jewish family even if it means that we die. They're people like we are. This is what you and Papa have taught me. When someone is in need, there is no choice. We must help. I say, let's hide them. There was silence in the room. Only the crickets outside could be heard. Only a distant bomb dropping somewhere. The family sat quietly and collected their thoughts. They sipped on their tea, occasionally looking at one another. As the fire slowly burned out, the three very tired family members crawled into bed. They expressed their love for one another and agreed to make a decision upon wakening. Perhaps the night would change everything and all of this would just simply go away. The clouds covered the full moon and the Jewish family. The Goldschmidt family huddled together in the barn covered by straw to keep themselves warm. They debated their fate. They knew if they left the barn that night, there was a good chance they would be killed. They also knew if they stayed there, there was as good a chance they would be killed and the family inside the little home would also be executed. 
They arrived at their decision. They picked up their meager belongings and exited the barn, heading off into the forest nearby. A few minutes later, shots could be heard. Regina, Stefan, and Maria awoke. They came to a decision, then carefully walked out to the barn to share their verdict with the Jewish family. They opened the door, walked inside, and quickly realized the Jews were gone. The end. The end. So what are you feeling? You know, I we have no idea what any of us would do. Yeah. We have no idea. And yeah. Like this is a fun exercise I think to do with like teenagers when you're educating teenagers because their emotions are so raw they and are. they're they're so kind of unafraid. Um but yeah, for an like for adult audiences which is normally where I find myself these days um, yeah it's like you can't even you, you can't even think about it you can't even imagine because we're not there we don't know well who who, who of these characters mm-hmm. you know um, did you identify with mostly I don't know it's a good question I think films and literature and kind of um, the hero culture that I think is really being promoted big time right now by things like Marvel and um, Marvel Comics? Marvel Comics, of yeah. Which all the, you worked all those, there, right? I, I worked there once, yeah. yeah. I think, especially the films, though, right now, with that mass appeal, um, I think there's like a hero culture, and I think all that stuff has taught us, yeah, you gotta, Regina's the right. Of course you gotta save them, no yeah. matter what it takes. Yeah, yeah. But I think my, I don't know, harsh realism also kind of sets in at the same time. And Stefan, who's like, Jews are always going to die, and there's nothing. We, even if we save these ones, other ones are going to die. So what's the point? Is that kind of, I don't know. It's an inter- He's a really interesting foil to this character because, um, I don't know. I think we, in a way less, um, like, in a way that's less about humanity right now, I think this is the conversation going on with climate change that happens in my own house all the time. Mm-hmm. There's so much we could be doing. We individually, we can stop using straws. We can, um, we can stop with the disposable uh, packaging, and we can stop all that stuff. At the same time, a storm is coming, and we're just going to have to deal with it when it comes. And save it. And th- and because I bought one reusable straw, I'm not going to save that. I'm not going to save everything. I'm not going to save the world. Yeah. There's there's only so much we can do. And so I think, I really don't know though. When it's when it's like your own life. When it's when you're in the town of of you're next to Auschwitz, and it's your own life. I don't know. Yeah, do you understand why I may, I had them living in the town of Auschwitz? No. Well, I think to make the point more so, I mean, imagine living in the town of Auschwitz Yeah. with what was going on only meters away from you, beyond the fence. So here's a family who was exposed to dastardly things. And I find it hard to believe that people didn't know. Do you? Yeah, I think they knew. Of yeah. course they knew, but I think they were totally paralyzed. And like, you know, I, th- I don't, blaming people yes. and continuing to blame people for generations and generations, generations and centuries, it can only do so much. At a certain point, you got to reconcile and right. figure out how to, and it's not easy for anybody and people are still mad, but you got to figure it out. We ha- all of us have to figure it out because we're not, we're not going anywhere right now. There's no movement happening here. There's no progress being made. And I think, I think there is progress being made now. 
I think Poland is doing some really interesting, there are certain people and certain sort of actors in Poland doing really interesting work right now. And I think it's like really dynamic and really challenging and really um, difficult work. But I think that's the way this happens. That's the way we, we move forward. Um, you can keep being mad forever, but... Uh, I guess on the flip side, one has to wonder, are you familiar with what the Polish government uh, came out with, I think, within the past year, saying that it wasn't them who built the death camps right. and they were not responsible for it, and it actually they made it against the law to say that. Mm -hmm. what's, what's your take on that? I think it's a reactionary move by a reactionary government, but I think what they're expressing is a real... You know, I think the... I can really, I really, I can really only speak to people my age, my generation, because that's kind of what I know the best. But I think these are people we were born in like around 1990. Yes. So they're born at at the fall of communism. So these are people. So the, their parents and all the people who stayed after the war had kind of everything, had their identities, their Polish identities, totally taken from them by communism. They had, they were not Poles. They were communists. And I think. Then you have the end of communism. You have people my age being born and growing up in a in a Poland that is now part of the EU. Like whoever thought that was going to happen, right? And it looks different there. The infrastructure is 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 good, and um, people are happy, and like it's a whole it's a totally new world in some parts of Poland. And I think those people are trying to figure out, okay, what who do we want to be? Yeah. It's the twenty first century. Poland is free again. <laughs> it's been yeah. a long time. Yeah. We have another independent Poland. A lot of water under the bridge. How are we going to move forward? How are we going to do this? And those are the most interesting places, I think, where those discussions are happening right now. Um, I think the people who stayed after the war, Poles and, you know, Jewish Poles and non-Jewish Poles, anybody who stayed after the war, is, that's an amazing thing to stay. You know, I kind of feel like those of us who got out were the lucky ones because we got to leave that behind and never had to deal with it every day. The people who stayed had to deal with that every single day. Yes. Under, um, under under a government that was not refused to deal with it in many ways and i think those we need to have conversations with those people i think um that's what i think this third generation thing is so interesting actually because i think there are people like me over here whose grandparents left there are people in poland whose grandparents stayed we have we share something and it's time to talk about it and i think that to me is is it's um it's like a sea of lava. It's like you don't know if you're going to get hurt. You don't know what's going to happen. But I think it's important to be there for those conversations, just to listen, to learn. I know a lot of people my age, a lot of my friends are still really mad at Poland. I think, sure, they have every right to be. But I think we can continue to be mad or we can do something about it. Did your grandparents uh, hate the Poles? No, actually. They did not? No. I don't think so. And your mother? No. No, because she wasn't, no. So you don't come from a long line of hate? No, we don't come from a long line of hate. I think my grandparents were happy Poles. They they, they were Poles themselves. They considered themselves Polish. Yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, because of that, I, um, I live my life really appreciating the trauma that these people experienced, whether you were German or Czech or, or Polish or whatever you were, to have that taken away from you all of a sudden. Um, like that's who, that's who, that's our, their identity. That's who they are. Just as I consider myself like thoroughly North American, I'm totally of this place and one of these people. And yet 
I know because I know my history that can be taken away so easily and none of that stuff actually matters. Your passport doesn't actually matter at a certain level. And I think, so I, so because they felt so thoroughly Polish, I can really appreciate the trauma of having that taken away. Um, I can also appreciate how tenuous that kind of category is. Um, and I also really appreciate the one that I'm in. I think I, I kind of feel that at many different levels. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. And just from our discussion now, it seems to me that on a most important level, you're not frightened. A lot of Jews are, but you don't seem frightened. Would that be accurate? And when I say frightened, I mean of what could be. It's those, the sound of the boots outside, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. I was commenting to my dear friend Ellie Rubenstein the other day that to be a Jew is to look at the flowers on my balcony. You see what I did on my balcony, Mary? Mm -hmm. I really built it up this summer. Beautiful flowers. It's gorgeous. I, I love flowers. Thank you. And to look at it, and you know what I thought about when it was done? I thought about the Nazis walking through the middle of a Polish street and how these beautiful flowers are hanging out over the balconies. That's what I thought about. That's what it is to be a Jew. We're traumatized. But in that light, you don't seem frightened, are you? I'm not frightened. No. I think what will be will be. And you, I don't know. You survive it or you don't. We have a really good track record of survival, Jews. So we're well trained in survival. Yeah. And I think we have a lot of resources available to us. And I think, like internally, I mean, like we have our languages and we have our culture and we have our education and we have our stories and we have our songs and we have, all those are means of survival I think and um, and we have a whole catalog of that stuff and I think what will be will be and I don't know I don't I don't see I don't know I'm not afraid no I'm not afraid because I just don't know when you're I think when people are afraid they it can, fear can be all consuming. And I think I have, I'm too, I'm having too much fun right now to, 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 to waste my time being afraid. Like, I just don't know if that's going to, I don't think that's going to do any good. You're not afraid to love more and more and more? No. You're not? No. And your husband's not? No. Very cool. What's your favorite uh, color? I don't know anymore. Right. That's what happens. Yeah, I like what totally. What was it when you were young? Purple. Oh, totally purple. Purple. You know there's Very a following. Purple. purple has a following. It's the only color that has a following. Because it doesn't have anything that rhymes with it? <laughs> Nurple. Nurple. Yeah. <laughs> no, there are people who are, everything about them is purple. And that color is considered to have a, a following. You know that purple is in the Torah. How do you say he, in Hebrew, purple? Argamon. Uh, Argamon. Argamon, oh, yeah. 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 What, what, do you have a favorite number? No. You don't have a favorite number? No. Do you count things? No. I collect things. So if you're sitting in a room and you're bored, you don't count the tiles on the ceiling? No. Hmm. Interesting. So you don't have any phobias? I don't like spiders very much. Yeah, you're Creepy terrified? Things. What's that called? I can Arachnophobia it. or something? Yeah, arachnophobia. I can like handle it. I don't enjoy it. And I'll like freak out and I'll probably make my husband go do it. But I, I can handle it. Have you yeah. had a bug crawling up on you ever? Yeah, I got into the shower like this. I'm traumatized from this. You want to know what trauma is? Yeah, please. I got into the shower like, I don't know, sometime last year in the wintertime. It was like dark, one of those dark early mornings. And there was this, in 
I, I, I turn on the water. I'm like, you know, like not really awake. I turn on the water. I'm not looking around really. I get in and all of a sudden there's this enormous, it wasn't all of a sudden, it was there the whole time. I just didn't see it. Huge. I'm talking like, oh, it must have been two and a half inches long. Um, centipede. The one with like all the little, like the stripy legs. Yes. Oh my, oh, I have chills thinking about it right now. And there I was, it was like the worst possible scenario because yeah. I'm there in the shower, half asleep, naked. How do you, how do you defend yourself? Right. And this thing was just as surprised to see me as I was to see it. Trust me, we were both freaking out. That was trauma, okay? So yeah. now as a result, every time I go to the shower in the morning, I look inside first to make sure I'm the only one in there. You know, I believe one day I saw this traumatized centipede, and it must have been in your, from your shower. My father used to say about centipedes, is if it ever thought about how it walked, it wouldn't be able to move, mm. right? What, what do you collect? Um, I collect cookbooks. I collect old Jewish books that I know no one else is interested in. Yeah. Um, like I always salvage like a sitter, like a prayer book that I find at like a used book sale or stuff like that. Um, um... Yeah, I've been I've been cataloging all the Yiddish books at the Morris Vinchevsky Center here in Toronto. That's where my son's bar mitzvah was. Yeah, yeah. And I've been cataloging all the Yiddish books because they kind of had this like room full of Yiddish books that like they don't know what to do with and they don't even know what's in there. So I've been sort of like helping and, and working with this wonderful team of volunteers um, who are helping me um, build this catalog and just sort of understand what's in there right. and get a sense of like the biography of that library and. Um, you know, once in a while we'll find like a something that's stamped from like some Talmud Torah, like a religious book. And I'm like, what? what's this doing in here? Yeah. And yeah. it clearly, I don't know where it came from, but that's like not, that's not part of that collection. And so I kind of make a little pile of those off to one side and we'll see what happens with those books. Aren't you fascinated but, by inscriptions in yes, old books? Yes. My father's legacy to me was what he underlined in his books. Totally. I think when you do, when you find like in uh, a library collection or in a used book store, you find something that someone has highlighted or written in the margins of. Yeah. That's like the inside of their brain. Right. It's like so intense to get that person's, you know, reading is such a personal thing. It ha It is now since the modern era. It didn't used to be that way. Reading was very public. But now reading is, and you used to like listen to stuff being read because not everybody could read. But now reading is like such a private, personal, intense thing. Mm -hmm. And when you see somebody's like notes that that come that spill out of their head onto the page as they're reading in this like really personal kind of like moment, it's like, like I think my notebooks, it's like somebody asked me like recently like what if you could like leave one thing behind, to like that that would be like your identity, and at 400 years from now, yes. like no one knows you anymore. There's nothing. There's not even a picture of you. What's the one thing you would leave? And I said my notebooks from school for sure. My notebooks from like my graduate work Why? because that is the inside of my brain. You want to know what I'm, you want to know who I am or what yeah, I'm thinking right. at my most intense moments. I'm thinking that and it's all there in those pages. Yeah, it's fascinating because Da Vinci left over his notebooks. One of them recently went for millions of dollars. I think Bill Gates owns one of them. And you have to think to yourself, my God, what was in those notebooks? Who was Da Vinci? Oh, see, I'm thinking, does Bill Gates even know Italian? Uh, you know, so in Bill Gates, the way he spoke about it, he was pretty passionate about that purchase. Them? Listen, it cost him millions of dollars. He's the type of guy who would. I he, hope so. He is the type of guy who would. So are we doing are we doing okay here on planet Earth? Yeah, we're figuring it out. I don't know. We could be doing better, but I think everybody could always be doing a little bit better. Um I think we're I think we've done the best we can. It sounds like it's kind of apocalyptic. Like it sounds like it's kind of like we run out of time now yeah. to improve upon it. But, you know, we're kind of like, 
I think I don't know. We're, it's like we're still growing. We're still learning. We're st we're still very primitive in many ways. And I think, um, yeah, it could be that we're doing okay. We definitely could be doing better. But I think we might be out of time. So. Oh, that's how know. you feel. Yeah, like I think we're doing the best we can and we're still trying to, I think it's really, I kind of feel like it's kind of noble that we're like scrambling right now to like figure out how to like save the planet and like save humanity and like end war and stuff, but we're not doing a very good job of it. Like yeah. we're not being particularly successful. And so I think, um, I think it's really noble to like, and I think we got to keep doing that stuff. I think being noble is not a bad thing, I, but I think, um, you know, I don't know. I, yeah, I'm not sure we really have enough um one thing I think we I don't know if we have enough time to solve all, the, all of our problems and I don't know if we um, I think as these problems become more intense I think more and more of us are just sort of like dropping out of the fight and sort of um, like what we talked about a minute ago just kind of like um, isolating themselves in their, within their own families and their, their own little worlds I think the global scale is just becoming a little bit too much for us actually it's like it's it's it was great when it first happened but I think we're it's it's getting it's getting to be a little bit too extreme like we just can't think that big. We're just little. We have little minds. We just can't think that big. Yeah, we're exposed so, to too much. I agree. Yeah, with you. I think we're overstimulated. So I don't maybe out of time and out of um, resources, out of energy. I don't know. Yeah, I'm a bit more positive than that. Oh, okay. But, yeah, it's pretty dark. Well, you're not a dark person. So in the whole body of this interview, you come up very positive. And and with that, I want to tell you how great it was to interview you. Really schmooze with you. It was lovely. Likewise. I just so enjoyed listening to you, your ideas, your thoughts. Um, what you've done with your life. And again, you'll remember that I had met you when you were very little. Yeah. To, to see you grow into this lovely human being, it's very, very special. So thank you for doing this. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, it was fun. How was the interview for you? So much fun. We could talk about everything forever. Yeah, we could go on you forever. You ask such hard questions like, <laughs> I don't know, how are we doing on earth? I don't know. Or what's your favorite number? I That one, I don't have no clue. No clue at all. Mine's no. three. Three? Yeah, three. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and to uh, my listeners, I uh, do hope you enjoyed the show. I'm sure you did. What I really encourage you to take out of this is the positivity of our discussion, the positivity within Miriam Borden. Um, who And you've really mapped out your life quite well. I know there were times where you're struggling with where to go, but you figured it out, at least for now. I'm working on it. Yeah, you're it's working a journey. on it. Like I said, I'm riding that train. The love that you show for humankind, the love you show for your mother, the love you show for your husband, your entire family, and just, just humankind in general, as I said, it's also very authentic and it's very, very beautiful. So when you listen to this interview, listen to it in that light. I mean, we can love, we can love more, and then we can love even more, right? Totally. Always. Yeah, always. Yeah. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, you've been listening to Hat Radio. It's the show that schmoozes. Do you like that? Love it. The show that schmoozes. Yeah, I like it too. God bless. Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking. Today, Avram is a professional speech writer and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speech writing needs, send Avram an email at info at hatradio.ca. That's info at hatradio.ca. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes.
Step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the heights